Every day of our lives is spent in the built environment. We live in homes and apartments, drive on roads, get gas from pipelines, go to work in buildings, make purchases in stores and restaurants. We rely on factories, plants, doctor's offices, and hospitals for our basic human needs. And while our world continues to shift and grow and change, the development and delivery of the built environment has fallen dramatically behind. Welcome to The Built Revolution. We're here to engage the leaders, visionaries, and innovators who are revolutionizing the built environment. This podcast is brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Hello and welcome to The Built Revolution podcast. Today, we're going to be talking again with Zig Rebell, co-founder and CEO of Foresight Digital. And the, the subject is prefabrication offsite construction. In our first conversation, if you want to go back and listen to the first episode, where we kind of talk about how the groundwork is being laid, is a really good prerequisite to this conversation. But there's also some great conversation here that you can, you can connect with whether or not you've listened to that. But I'd recommend going back uh, if you've got the time. Uh, but today, uh, we're going to get a little bit more in-depth and get a little bit more applications-driven. So we're going to talk about how prefabrication, offsite construction principles uh, are, and results are being driven through some different industries. And some of them are, in, are, are really construction-oriented. Some of them are more manufacturing-oriented. And we're going to talk about how those, those analogies may play out as we think about the built environment and structures. Uh, and then we'll finish by talking about uh, the future. You know, and really what's possible uh, as we kind of get on the other side of this transition you know, from where we are today through to a, a much different you know, future in how we design and build and, and maintain and improve and, and renovate uh, the, the built environment. So this will be a great conversation. Looking forward to it. And hopefully you are as well. So uh, with that, I'm going I'm to turn it over to, to Zig, who's going to start by talking about an industry of which he's familiar with, the semiconductor industry. So you know, welcome back, Zig. It's great to have you here and uh, looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, Clark, thanks for having me. Uh, on the previous segment, I talked a little bit about my experience at a company called Aditas that I co-founded with a semiconductor engineer. And one of the, the fascinating things that I learned in that journey was how the computer chip designers went from essentially building um, let's call it circuit boards of transistors into chips. And in around the 1980s, the semiconductor industry started recognizing that they could make functional devices on a single chip so that they wouldn't have to custom build it like we custom build a building. And that was called ASIC design, application-specific integrated circuit. Mm -hmm. And the reason why it's relevant for um, our industry is that the real value for them was that it collapsed the knowledge spheres or banks, the people that knew how to make semiconductors and the people who knew how semiconductors function. So builders who know how to build buildings and owners and designers who know how buildings function, the ASIC quote unquote revolution collapse at. And I think that's something we in our industry could probably learn a lot from. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Are, are they doing anything like that in let's say pharma? 
Well, it's, it's interesting you should, you'd ask that because um, there, there are some interesting things going on with modular around clean rooms. You know, we've, we've talked about how people tend to, when you say modular, you know, a lot of times people tend to think of an entire structure, like the entire facility being built modularly and kind of brought in. But there's a lot of application for pieces and different different elements of different facilities being done modular. And this is a good example. There's a company called Gcon Modular. There's others as well that's doing uh, modular clean rooms. Uh, for pharmaceutical and for bio and, and, and biopharmaceutical. And it's really interesting because these, these modules or pods are designed to be very flexible uh, and to be reconfigurable for different uh, usages. So, uh, you know, as, as you may, maybe you're changing you know, the product that you're manufacturing in that facility, you know, these modules will have the ability to flex at least to some degree to be able to accommodate uh, you know, different processes or, di- or different, uh, different compounds are being made. Or in some cases, uh, even even different applications. Uh, you know, some of them have been reconfigured for in the field containment. For example, when 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 uh, scientists go into Ebola zones, for example, they've been able to use these modules. So a lot of different thinking around you know how to how to design structures. And instead of you know, thinking about the whole factory being modular, it's like, well, what are some different elements of that factory that we we can make modular that have high value or high impact on the the core function of, of the facility? So. I think that's a, that's a really interesting example there. Um, you'd also talked about before for a different industry, completely shipbuilding and how they approach the design and build of ships. Yeah. I mean, contrary to ship design, which is focused on a one inch by one inch square, right. if you take a, a modern cruise ship and stand it on its on its tip, it's taller than many buildings that we build. And many of them are highly customized and as people in that industry like to say is if we don't do it right our ship will sink whereas right. our buildings well fortunately they don't they don't sink but they ships by themselves when i was doing a little bit of research for the the podcast a lot of the the design thinking is around whether the ship makes it through the panama canal or not right um, that that's kind of like the differentiator from, I think it's called pan X uh, size and yep. all, all the way to the the super tanker and wh- whether it's a super tanker or a cruise ship, the, the big focus is building the hull, or in in our world the the structure of the building, and then adding the components and the materials around it. And if you look at a, a modern cruise ship, again, the research that, that I've done, many of the rooms, like the state rooms, are modular. And they're saying that about you have 40 different uh, modules uh, on a modern cruise ship and about 50 different panel sizes to make those more customized spaces. So if our industry can start thinking about how we have a standardized kit of parts like that, then I think you will not have to compromise on design and and could have a more productized way of thinking. And I think, Clark, you were going to talk a little bit about uh, digital components. Yeah, definitely. I was just, and, and one of the things, just one last comment on the shipbuilding. Um, yeah. You know, I would assume that the tolerances that they're designing and building to are probably a little tighter for something that has to actually float and go across the ocean than for a building. 
yes. And the, the other thing that they have to take into account is much greater thermal expansion and contraction. Yep. So they're, they're, so they're achieving modularity in a much more challenging physical environment for the most part. Right. 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 Yeah. You can always find exceptions if you're building for the poles or something, but you know, that's right. it. Because people always say, oh, oh, it's too complex. The environment where it has too many variables. Well, you know, how about sailing a giant vessel full of oil from you know one continent to another? I mean, that's there's there's a lot of there's a lot involved there technically. Um, yeah, they're they're, yeah. they're solving that. But yeah, there, there's um. Well, it's interesting because if you, if you look at the overall you know different roles in the value chain or the, the supply chain of construction, one that's that's under increasing pressure if you kind of look forward is the pure general contractor who functions really just as an integrator for the most part of information and, and contracts and things. And as you move forward, you know, I think the, the really, the smart GCs are seeing that they need to be doing more than just being an integrator. Sure that, that, that integration component has value, but you know, a lot of the smart companies are getting more into fabrication and prefabrication. And a lot of others are also getting more into design and design build, which I think also makes sense. You know, and D- DPR is a great example where they've got their digital building components business out in Phoenix uh, where they're doing a lot with panelization and some with modular, but I know they've done they've done a lot with different materials for panelization that can significantly increase the productivity, also control schedule, control quality much better. And that's really, I think, just it's just the beginning. They're they're intended to continue to to drive and push the envelope as it relates to how, how do we do building envelopes in a more Componentized or in a more modular way, and they've 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 already made a lot of advancements there, and they're, they're they've been able to find you know cost savings, and schedule savings uh, there already. So along with kind of the idea that we you know we have we have the need to change you know for all kinds of other reasons, the economic case is also there for companies like DPR. There's others that are doing similar things. Um, I know PCL Construction does a lot with prefabrication. I think Skender does as well. I mean, there's there's a number more and more getting into it, but I thought you know, DPR has really taken a, a unique approach to it. I think is is, is really a, a leader in a lot of ways with digital building components. What what are some other some other? I know you've worked with some other companies or or aware of some other companies that are doing some unique things either in the yeah yeah. So I I wanted to first talk about a company called Mark Three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Three is uh, they are a general contractor, but I think they cut their teeth initially on uh, mechanical and, and yep. civil work, but they are focused on creating rooms. And I would definitely uh, suggest going to their website and downloading yep. their case study reports. Um, but if you read it, uh, they talk about how in California, there's 8,000 medical office buildings. Right. And the majority of rooms in a medical office building is an exam room. And almost every project that Lisa that they've worked on, and probably me as a designer, you start out with redesigning an exam room because there's so much space in the (laughs) building. And if you, if you can start standardizing the design, then everything for that quote unquote space uh, becomes much simpler. So the really interesting thing about Mark III's rooms is that it takes two people that do not have specific trainings in the trades and they can assemble an exam room 
fully complete in six and a half days. Wow. So when you start scaling that for an entire building, the documentation that they shared on, on projects that they've worked on in California, they're looking at almost uh, 50% of the building can be created that way. And that's returning a lot of both money and time right. uh, to the project or the client in, in thinking about projects that way. The other thing I, I wanted to touch on is this idea of platforms. Mm-hmm. And this concept of platforms has, has come from the United Kingdom and they they call it modern methods of construction. Okay. <laughs> Sounds like a History Channel show, but it's, <laughs> it's not. And uh, Bryden Wood, who is a really an innovative design firm that has been working with the United Kingdom governments on determining many of, of these standards, talk about platforms and, and how a bathroom in a hospital doesn't really have to be different than a bathroom in a school or or different in a lab. And now you're starting to get back to the shipbuilding approach where a bathroom is just one room type that you could use in all these different buildings. So when buildings become an instantiation of a platform per se, then you really start getting much more economies of scale. Yeah. Now that, that, that makes perfect sense. And you start to, to be able to compete uh, on other dimensions, you know, rather than, you know, well, you know, my, my bathroom design has, you know, two extra feet in it and it does this or that. And, you know, it's uh, figuring out where and every industry, I mean, the, the, the auto industry, you know, went through that, that phase, you know, from having, you know, literally car companies that were, that were in people's garages you know, right, and, right. and standardization came through and said, well, you know what, we really don't need to compete on whose, whose bolt is better than someone else. We need to standardize what these bolts are and what they, what their functions are. Right. So, right. You know, we have a limited number of pieces that we're dealing with here and we're going to compete. Now that we have all these things, we can create a different hole and it, it gives us the money to be able to invest in more value ultimately for the customer, more performance for the vehicle. Yeah, and the right. same thing, the same, same thing for the facility. Right. And and you probably know the exact number, but cars used to have hundreds of different fasteners. And now I think there's only like six. Yeah. It's it's very few. It's a single digit. Yes. Yes. Well, the, the, you go back to the semiconductors. I, I think there was, you know, there's like different resistors and transistors and and you know, pieces that went from having literally just dozens upon dozens of versions down to like two. That's right. So I, I was going to mention that. So it's called PNP or NPN, NPN which okay. is the, the type of material for the conductivity. So like you were saying, when transistors were first created, they had hundreds of different of transistor types because they were custom made for right. their performance. And now everything is just one of two types. Yep. And maybe we don't need to get that <laughs> uh, binary for the building industry, but I, I think we definitely could move towards that. So what do you think is possible uh, when we start thinking modularly 
and with prefabrication? Well, there, there's a few things that I think of, and I, I tend to think maybe a little bit more at the dirt level, um, just based on where I've come from with our practice. But I, right. I start to look at the fact that we've got so much square footage of facilities that we need to produce for society to continue to function you know, properly and to the expectations of people. And we, we lack the human resources capacity as well as capability because we're, you know, you talked earlier about creating a system that's easier to install. Well, we're losing so much knowledge uh, in the trades over the next 10 years because of retirement that we haven't, we haven't built, you know, in, in the, the coming generations. And so we just lack the capacity to build what we need to build to the level of quality that we have doing it the way we've been doing it. So we, we, we must change. And so when, when you look at all these options and all of these different things, whether it's the semiconductor industry, shipbuilding, modular clean rooms, you know, digital components, standardizing rooms you know, that can be used in all kinds of different applications or, or being able to use these in different configurations, I start to see that we can punch through this sort of paralysis that we're headed for as an industry in terms of not being able to deliver what society needs you know, from the construction industry. Yeah. So, you know, who's really struggling with that is Japan. Yeah. So Japan's average age is significantly higher than, than what the U S is, is, and the moms there are not having as many babies and they, they have a very uh, reduced workforce. And I, I don't remember exactly where, but I saw a picture of a dam being constructed and most of it was being constructed with robots. Yeah. And I think there might have been one or two workers uh, on the site. And I'm not at all saying that that's where our industry needs to go. However, it's really hard to get young high school graduates to want to join the trades. Mm-hmm. Right. When you speak to individuals that are in the trades, they're really looking at recruitment as being one of their number one priorities. And as you said, you know, quote unquote, the gray hair skilled laborers are, you know, they're, they're retiring. So, you know, you have, you have smart people that do end up joining the trades, but then they're not going to get that mentorship um, that's really needed. So I wonder what do you think would be the right, performance indicators, because as Peter Drucker would say, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. I think yeah. that's what, what it is. What do you think would be the right metrics that this new way of building should be? Well, there's one really basic one. I'll, I'll go first and go with the easy one because, uh, you know, it's, it's my podcast, so I'll, I'll do that. You know, the, the really easy ones are the productivity measures where you've got the denominator is craft workers or on-site construction workers. And the numerator is whether you want to put square feet of building delivered, whether you want to put dollars put in place, you know, whether you want to look at different scope items within you know, the building, however you want to do that. Uh, there's all kinds of ways when you start to look at those core productivity, you know, what's the output that we're producing for the human input necessary to deliver that output? Um, you know, and if, if we're unable to start to make those numbers go up, you know, multiples of, right, then we'll, we'll know we're, we're in trouble. Right. You know, and I think a lot of these technologies are giving us that way. You know, uh, owners are, are catching on. Some of the first 
you know, metrics that I've heard, you know, I know Merck went public with an 80% craft labor offsite by 2025 goal, um, mm-hmm. which again, you, you can argue whether that's realistic or whatever, but what I love about goals like that is there, there's a message they're conveying, right? Uh, the message isn't, and doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the number 80, but it's the fact that it's significant. It's a significant number. And right. you're not going to be able to hit that number without fundamental change in the way that you're doing what you're doing, right? And so it's it's sending a huge message, a really important message to the supply chain for construction that if you want to do our work, you're going to have to figure out a different way of, of, of doing it. So, you know, so again, it's, it's a form of that productivity, you know, kind of metric that I was referencing there. So, so I took the easy one. So I'll take your move and I'll raise you one by... <laughs> I think one of the metrics is really going to be usability of the building. Right. So it's not only the productivity of the team members that have to create the building, but if they're building the wrong building, why does it really matter if they're productive or not? Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So whether you want to use Merck or Johnson and Johnson, I'm sure before they figure out we're, we're going to build this building, they want to make sure that whatever they're going to make in there is going to be able to be active 24-7 or, yeah. or you know, close to that. So when you, you come back to what I would call inhabitable buildings, because many of the buildings <laughs> they, they build, uh, I, I don't think we'd want to go there and, and, and do this podcast. Um, yeah. I think we need to start rethinking about the live work relationship, community living, and how uh, I think a lot of society is going to be changing soon. Because like, like you said, we're, we're not going to have all of these workers the, the way we used to when we were younger. Uh, yeah. I, I wouldn't say young, but younger. Uh, young, I like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when we were younger and how we, we just have to start accepting the buildings that are there. Mm-hmm. So well, one statistic that I came across is that if we build a building today that's type one construction, it's yeah. going to last over 120 years. Okay. Right. So obviously much longer than you and I have and much longer than our children, unfortunately, have. So how are we starting to think about how those buildings are going to be used so that we're not having this kind of consumer wasteland of buildings? And I think when you start going modular, you can start thinking about that and thinking about how buildings can be, quote unquote, reconfigured. Not in a significant way, but in a in a minor way to make them more usable. Right. Right. Well, yeah, it kind of builds on your point about is the facility fit for, for its purpose? You know, is it right? It, it, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I'm not saying at all that we should be able to convert a office building to an apartment complex, but I can tell you because of the pandemic, people are starting to think that way. Well, you, no doubt. Of, you got a lot of empty office space and they're realizing I'm not making any money. I need to uh, change that. And 
people are actually doing that with garages. You know, they're realizing with all of the rideshare companies that are out there, people aren't driving their cars as much. So they're they're not making them apartments, but they're making them maybe office space or other types of functions. So this notion of reuse, I think, is going to be critical when it comes to prefabrication and offsite yeah. construction. Definitely. You know, you, you've got retail, particularly mall, your know, retail also looking for big conversion opportunities as well right now. It's another another big category. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's something that that um, doesn't get nearly enough uh, attention is when we talk about buildings, we talk so much about the construction of them. We don't think about or don't talk as much about, okay, well, what's the what's the life cycle of that facility truly, you know, yeah, and yeah. how do we increase the value of that, of that life cycle? You know, one, one of the key things is, is adaptability. Uh, right. You know? Right. So I, I had a former client that would always talk about the golf ball and the basketball okay. and the golf ball was the cost for design and construction. Yep. And the basketball was the cost of operations. Yep. And everyone has beaten up the designer and the builder for the golf ball, but they really need to be thinking about the basketball. And I think it's just going to become more and more apparent as we go further into this century. Well, and hopefully there's a beach ball that represents the value delivered (laughs) facility or at least something bigger than a basketball. Otherwise, yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. No, I yeah. I agree. Well, it would be a beach ball, and I can't even think of what would be bigger than uh, maybe a yoga ball. Yeah, yoga ball. Yeah, I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> because as buildings last longer, they're gonna they're gonna provide a lot more value. Definitely. Definitely. These are great points. So to maybe bring it back to ground us a little bit in in kind of where we are today. You know, you, you come from you know a discipline in design and architecture and technology. What should we be thinking about as professionals in in the design uh, industry, in the construction industry, and as those those two disciplines really are kind of you know continue to merge? You know, what, what are the key things to be doing and thinking about today for designers and for builders? Well, I I always recommend one being curious. and not assuming that you know what your customer or client needs. Mm. And oftentimes you might have a client and you'll realize, oh, they're in this business, so therefore they're going to need X. Right. And in this new world, you know, everything should be off the table. And there's a great book called Problem Seeking, which talks about finding out what the client needs. And I think that's really the key to going slow to go fast. And if if we're going to embrace modular componentized construction, I I think we need to listen better without bias. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It's, you know, we we call that a lot of times in the consulting world, it's sort of understanding the pain. Right. Uh, you know, before you come in with the solution, you know, make sure you understand what the real the real underlying pain is. And, and a lot of times your clients may not use the same language that we would use to describe that pain. And so you've really got to understand and not assume that you understand what they're saying. A lot of times they'll use the same words or, or similar words and 
you know, if you don't really clarify mm-hmm. what they're trying to communicate, uh, it's you can make really huge mistakes with, with the best yeah. of intentions. Absolutely. And not to be getting political here, but uh, there's a saying that Donald Rumsfeld popularized about the unknown unknowns. Yes. And I think the world many of us operate in is the known knowns. Right. And for us to get closer to being successful in a prefabricated modular componentized world, we need to start understanding both the unknown knowns and the known unknowns. I don't think we have to worry about unknown unknowns yet. You know, maybe when aliens start landing on the earth then you know, we could start thinking about that, but. Well, that's what insurance is for, right? The unknown. unknown. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But, but I think in all seriousness, we need to start thinking about what's possible and not saying, oh, I know what the answer is. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic way to finish up the discussion. I think that's a great point. And uh, I'm really excited to, uh, again, we've, we've talked about this before. I was at a conference and a futurist was telling us that we were all going to have like four careers, you know, and we're going to work until we were in our well into our 80s. So if that's the case, I'm really excited for the next 35, 40 years of my career. Uh, <laughs> we'll get to, to participate in and be part of all this change. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your, your insights and your knowledge. Sure. And I uh, really, as always, really enjoy the conversation. Is there, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I do. I, I learned something very important in, in architecture school. My professor said, you should only stay at a job so long as you don't need to order a new business card. (laughs) And his reasoning behind it was that if you're not learning, they're making too much money off of you. And (laughs) it reinforces my point of being curious. And the truth of the matter is, I did not need a new business card until I became a firm owner. Right. So, I I mean, not because I purposely left jobs, but, you know, I got changed positions or went to a different area, but I'm just trying to reinforce in in this trajectory of working till we're 80, don't stay in the same job and and be curious. Absolutely. hundred percent, hundred percent. I, I'm not going to add anything to that. That's a great, great way, great way to land, stick the landing zig. Fantastic. Again, uh, everyone, thanks for, for tuning in to the Built Revolution podcast. It's the second half of the discussion uh, with Zig Rubel, co-founder and CEO of Foresight Digital, and uh, you know one of the true thought leaders in our industry and a great friend. Thank you for joining us, Zig. Thank you so much for having me, Clark. And I, I hope your, your listeners enjoy this as, as much as I enjoyed talking with you about it. Fantastic. And we'll see you guys next time on the Built Revolution podcast. Thanks for listening to the Built Revolution pod brought to you by Continuum Advisory Group and the Construction Industry Institute. Continue the conversation on Twitter at Built Revolution Pod or email us at hello at builtrevolutionpod.com. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals being interviewed, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of the sponsoring organizations.